If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of John. If you're four to eight years old, you can go with Miss Jamie Weeby, and she's going to talk to you about Jesus out there in Children's Church. And if you're in here, you can turn to the book of John, John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Find verse 30, and we're just going to read two verses, verse 30 and 31, and I'll pray one more time. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Let's pray. Father, we pause once again to ask You for help. It's a constant need. We constantly need help. We constantly need strength. We, we need grace. We need mercy. We need wisdom. We need insight. Right now we need eyes to see and ears to hear. So would you provide? Would you provide eyes to see great and wondrous and glorious truths in your word? Give us ears to hear the truths that you would have us to hear today. And would you help us by the power of the Spirit to live in light of what we've seen? In Christ's name, amen. So we're back in John, as you noticed. And I hope the fall series, if you haven't been here or just visiting with us, we, took, uh, we were in John last year and then we took all of the fall. And I can't remember how many sermons, but we preached a lot of sermons on the doctrine of the church, looking at what the church is and what the church does. And I'd hope to get further into that series than I did and hope to answer more questions than I did. But uh, I know I didn't answer everything and I left a, a good number of things unstated. But hopefully, if someone were to ask you on the street, remember that question we asked at the very beginning of that sermon series on the doctrine of the church. If somebody walked up to you on the street and said, hey, you go to church every Sunday, what is the church? What does the church do? Uh, that at least you have some sermons that you're aware of that are online that you could maybe go, if you couldn't answer it on the spot, you could go listen to those sermons. And so I've tried to point us in a, in a helpful direction. And if you just go back to what the church is, I've said it this way, uh, the church is the blood-bought, omni-ethnic, multi-generational, worldwide, new covenant people of God. A lot of hyphenated words in there. But blood-bought... So the church bought by the blood of Jesus, omni-ethnic, so people from every tribe and tongue, multi-generational, young and old, worldwide, so no, no, uh, no lock on geography, we're a worldwide people and new covenant people that we're not under the old covenant, but Jeremiah 31, we're a new covenant people. So the church is blood-bought, omni-ethnic, multi-generational, worldwide, new covenant people of God. So you can say that on the street and what? And then you can try to unpack it for them. But if you look at the church and what marks the people of God out from the rest of the world, most fundamentally I would say this, that it's our belief in Jesus Christ. So if you look at the church, if you look at Christians, right, there's a sect of people called Christians, what marks them off from everybody else in the world? Is it that we get up and we dress sort of nicely and we go to a building and we read a Bible and, and we, we sing songs? Is that what marks us off fundamentally, that we read a, a sacred book uh, and that we sing songs? Well, other religions do that sort of thing. So what marks us off fundamentally, the, the dividing line, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is that which fundamentally marks 
us off. We are believers in him. So in all honesty, when I was writing this I, and planning out the sermon series, I have a document and I plan out sermon series and I think I've got the next three series on paper, at least where I want to go. But, but when I sat down and put church and then back to John in January, I didn't plan that there would be this tight thematic link between the series on the church and returning to John's gospel. But as I was studying, I think it fits. This is God's providence, right? This works so well, right? We, again, follow me. How does it fit? How does going from church to John work? Well, the church, as we've just said, is marked out by our belief in Jesus. We're believers, right? So if people, somebody, we are believers. We use that, that word, that, that, that uh, phrase to, to identify who we are. We are believers. I'm a believer. I'm a believer in Jesus, We are those who have believed in Christ. We've put our faith in Him. We've trusted in Him for the forgiveness of our sins. So the church is a body of believers in Jesus. So it's a simple way to answer that question on the street. Hey, what is the church? How would you define it? Well, the church is a body of believers in Jesus. Then, well, how does that connect to John? Well, why did John write his gospel? We just read it. Why did he write... His account of the life of Jesus. Why did he sit down and put pen to paper? Why did he record the signs that Jesus worked? What was John's purpose? We just told us, right? John writes, look at verse 31. These are written, these signs, and he unpacks seven of them before you get to this, before you get to chapter 11 or chapter 12. These signs that he's pointing to are written so that you might believe. So the church is a body of believers, and John writes that you might believe. Perhaps even more succinctly, John writes so that you might believe in Jesus for life. That's why John writes. That's why he sits down in a dusty room somewhere with a quill and some ink and some papyrus, and he labors to put these things on paper. I I can write four pages uh, you know, I looked, thought about it this week. I can write four pages in about 15 minutes, 20 minutes. 15, 20, 30 minutes if it's a difficult subject. I can, put four, I can put thoughts, and it's not clean, but I can put thoughts on four pages of paper in about half an hour. I don't know how many hours it would take to take a quill and an ink, and an ink I'd love to try it someday, and write on papyrus and write this book. We're talking not hours. We're talking days. We're talking a long time to write all this down and to remember all of it. Why did he do it? He does it so that you, hundreds and hundreds of years later, would believe in Jesus for life. And I mean two things by that for life. One, so that you'd have life. Two, that you'd believe all the days of your life. And we're going to unpack those things. So John writes so that you might believe in Jesus. And so in one sense, if you look back in the series of the church on the church, what is the church? What we're doing now is moving back to John to highlight the most fundamental mark of the church, namely our belief in Jesus Christ. So let's unpack John chapter 20 verses 30 to 31 together. So if you go back there, if you look at it and you're reading, maybe you're reading the ESV or the NIV, it's pretty easy to read and, and understand 
at face value. It's not difficult. There's not a whole lot of complexity here. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. You understand that? There he has followers, disciples. He did a lot of other stuff. They're not written in this book. You get that. But these are written so that you may believe. And if you look right there, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Here it gets a little bit tricky. A couple of reasons. One, there is discussion or debate about how you read that phrase. That you may believe. There are basically two views. One is that that you believe is actually in the present tense. And it should read this way. That you keep believing. These are written that you keep believing in Jesus. That is, John's writing to those who've already come to faith. They've already walked in aisle. They've already been baptized. They've, they've already joined a church. They're believers already. And John's writing this book so that you, believer, would keep believing in Jesus. That's if you translate it in the present tense. These are written so that you may continue to believe. But if you're reading the ESV or NIV or most translations, they don't take it that way. Instead, it's John writes with a more evangelistic intent. He records the life and ministry of Jesus, particularly the signs of Jesus, which we're going to look at in a moment, so that you may believe for the first time. So he's, in this view, he's writing to a bunch of people who've never believed in Jesus, right? He's writing to a bunch of people, they're getting this letter, and you've never come to faith. You've never believed in Jesus. You've never embraced Him as the Messiah, as the Christ. And John's writing to convince you, come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Be saved. So you get to two points. This is all translation stuff. If you translate it in the present tense, it's you've already believed, Kurt. Keep believing. Or you translate it in this other tense, you've never, or you've never believed. Believe for the first time. So what John is doing is seeking to persuade them. Now, it's often the case that two ideas can be simultaneously true, right? And so I think that's the best way to go, is that both of these ideas are true. I think the best way to take it is the way that we have it here. John's writing with an evangelistic intent, yet... Yet, is it not also true that for generation after generation after generation, people have picked up the book of John, have read it, and what's happened? They've been encouraged to keep believing. So I think John is writing to a bunch of people who've never believed in Jesus, a Jewish audience that's looking for the Messiah. Who is He? Who is the Christ? And John's saying it's Jesus. Believe in Him. Come to Him in faith. Cling to Him for the salvation of your soul. I think that's who he's writing to. Yet, what's happened? People have believed in Jesus and they keep going back to the book of John. They keep reading the book of John. They keep finding nourishment in the book of John. And it encourages us to keep believing, to keep clinging to Christ for our salvation and our joy. So, Tom Steller, one of my favorite professors, when I was in seminary, he used to say things. We'd have these big debates about translation and stuff. And he'd sit up there with a little smile on his face and listen to all of us young guys debating. We should do it this way or that way. And we didn't know what we were talking about. We were arguing about things pretty vehemently. You know, you think you know a lot more than you know. And he's just sitting up there smiling, watching of it. And he says, you know what, guys? I think both are gloriously true. And we're like, yeah, they are both true. And I think here, both concepts are true. Now, it doesn't mean there's not a right way to translate it. And I think the right way to translate it is, these are written so that you may believe. Yet it's also true that if you go to John's gospel, 
You go to any of the Gospels. You go to the Bible and you read. And what God does through the power of the Spirit is He takes the Word and He fuels the fires of your affection for Christ. So you're a believer already, but you have to keep believing. And so you go to the Word. You go to the Bible and you, and you let it throw logs on the fire of your faith. So that's what I want to do. That's, that's where we want to go today. If you're here, you've never believed in Jesus. You've never embraced Him. John's writing and I'm preaching with the same purpose that you'd believe. And if you're a believer today, my prayer is, John's writing, the preaching of the Word will throw a log on the fire of your faith. So I want to do it in three, three ways. One, he mentions these signs. I just want to review them to you. We've walked through 11 chapters of John a long time ago, you probably don't remember everything that I said in those sermons. If you do, you're awesome. But I want to just give you a little review about the signs that we've seen. And then, look at this statement. In the way that John writes it, believe in Jesus for life. Believe in Jesus and live. And then secondly, or thirdly, keep believing in Jesus for life. So the first one, a selection of signs. So notice what he says here. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. There's a lot of things that Jesus did while He was on this earth that didn't find their way into John's Gospel or any of the Gospels. In fact, John will say in chapter 21, where every one of those things written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So what I take away from that is the earthly ministry of Jesus is more spectacular, more amazing, more astonishing than I could ever imagine. I mean, just think about it. If we were to write down all the great things, all the ministry that Jesus did, the books of the world could not contain all of His wonders. You should marvel at that. You're getting, when you read John, you get seven signs, selection, tiny selection of signs. He says, that's all i got time for. Seven's a perfect number. It'll stop there, right? I'll put seven signs in here so that they'll believe. But if I were to write them all down, you, wouldn't, you couldn't imagine how many books it would take to, take to record everything. So we just marvel at Jesus' life and ministry. So you go back, and what was the first sign that Jesus did? The first sign is in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and that's turning water into wine. You remember that story? Jesus is at the wedding at Cana. The, the water runs out, or the wine runs out, and everybody's panicking. What in the world are we going to do? This is, this is really bad. This is going to that party, and they run out of food. It's a cultural taboo. And so what's going to happen? And Jesus, you're going to have to do something. And boy, does he. Boy, does he. He fills up the jars and you remember what that was all about? It's not simply a party trick. That's the age of the Messiah is here. You read the Old Testament, and in the age of the Messiah, what happens? The wine runs freely. There's an abundance. So Jesus' first sign is not simply, hey, watch what I can do. I have this neat card trick. I love card tricks. I've got a couple. If you're ever over at my house, I'll show them to you. They're amazing. I just want to wow you with my ability to trick you with cards. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not saying, hey, watch what I can do. He's saying, look at who I am. He cleanses the temple in John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. He cleanses the temple, and then what does he do? He says, I'm the temple. I'm the temple. 
The temple is where God would dwell with His people, among His people. And then He says, tear that down because the temple is here. I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. It's why we have Christmas. I am God with you. The presence of God with His people is Jesus. Then John chapter 4, the third one, healing the nobleman's son. Here's Jesus' power, the Messiah's power over disease and sickness. Again, you read the Old Testament. This is what the Messiah does. He heals people. John chapter 5 is number 4. Healing the lame man. I love this one. The lame man is said to leap for joy. What's going on? Is this Jesus again saying, look at what I can do. I can take this lame man and cause him to jump up and down. That's a pretty cool trick. That's not what he's doing. Isaiah said the lame would leap for joy. Do you not see it happening in the life of Jesus? Remember John's writing that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. The age of the Messiah is here. John chapter 6. The Messiah not only heals the sick, causes the lame to walk, but He sustains God's people. I'm the bread of life. I can give you some loaves and fishes, but if you want to be sustained forever, feed on me. And feed is just a word for believe. Believe in me. John chapter 9. What else, will the, what else will happen when the Messiah comes? The lame will walk, the blind will see. John chapter 9. It's the sixth sign. Again, this miracle points to the age of the Messiah. The lame walk, the blind see. The Messiah has come. This is hard for us to grasp just how significant this is. If you're a Jew and you're living in this ancient age, you're waiting. Your, your, history, your family, your ancestors, your tribe, you've been waiting. You've been waiting for a long time. I can't really say that about those of us in the West. We didn't, if you grew up outside of a Christian home, you didn't uh, grow up waiting on the Messiah. None of us grew up probably saying, hey, we're waiting on the Messiah, Right? Nobody grew up in this room, I would say, unless you're a true ethnic Jew, grew up saying, we're waiting on the Messiah to arrive. But that would have been Jewish culture. That was their world. We're waiting on the Messiah to get here. And so when Jesus walks onto the scene, and He's doing all these things, turning water into wine, cleansing the temple, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing. Could this be the Christ? And John writes to say, yes, He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been looking for. He's the one that my grandfather used to talk about and look for. Imagine being a, you're 30 years old or 40 years old and, and you, you grew up in this, this Jewish community and you used to hear your, I just came back from Kentucky and watched my, my family sit around and talk and it's always interesting conversations. Um, but you, you grew up and, and your uncle sitting there with your, your, your father and they're talking about the Messiah, when's he going to come? Or, or you grew up and, and your grandfather's telling you stories from the Old Testament saying we're looking for him, he's coming, keep hoping. You grew up and then all of a sudden, could this be the Christ? And John's walking around saying, it's him. It's him. John the Baptist, different John. Preparing the way. It would have been surreal. Unreal. But that's what John wants you to do. He wants you to believe. You're so far removed from this world. I get that. 
so far removed from this ancient world. But down the line, it's just as important that we see what John wants us to see. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and He's the only one. He's the only way. Leads to the seventh son. The seventh one is raising Lazarus. This is an amazing story. Climactic son before you get the resurrection of Jesus himself. It's a major transition in the book. If you look at, go back to John 11 and you just look, you get this resurrection of of Lazarus and then you get over to uh, chapter 12 and um, you have this plot to kill um, Jesus and he's no longer... Chapter 11, verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews. And so the the scenes shift, the ministry shifts because of this sign right here. He goes to a grave. Lazarus has been in the tomb for several days. And Jesus walks up and he speaks. And what did Jesus say would happen one day? What would the dead hear? They would hear his voice. And what would they do? You remember that in John 5? John 5, you have the days coming when the dead would hear the voice of the Son of God. And what would they do? They'd live. They'd come up out of their grave. And so you get that in John 5. And you get all these signs saying, I'm the Messiah. And then you get to John 11. And what Jesus does is show us that that day had arrived. He speaks. Lazarus heard the voice of the Son of God and he came forth. So he's stacking all these things up. The lame are walking. The blind are seeing. The wine is running. The age of the Messiah is here. And the Messiah has authority not over mere blindness and sickness, but death itself. <laughs> Which is amazing. A few Jewish leaders are thinking, we need to kill this guy. He just raised somebody from the dead. What are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? Sin makes you stupid. Just raise the guy from the dead. And then they're, we're going to see next week, we go back to John 12, and they're saying, hey, we should kill that one guy again. Lazarus, just raised him from the dead. What's it going to do? It's not going to stop anything. Messiah's here. See him. Believe in him. So these are the signs that John's recording, and he's doing all of it. He's writing all this down so that you would believe. That you would believe. So, go back to verse 31 in John 20. These signs are meant to lead you somewhere. So if you're here today, and you've never believed in Jesus... And I'm going to explain more about what I mean by believing Jesus. If you've never come to Him for life, this is why John is writing. Would you hear Him today? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. The God of the universe sits in the heavens, put the stars in place, put the worlds where they are, put you where you are, that God, ages ago, moved John by the power of His Spirit 
to write these things down so that you would live forever. Now, I've never written an article and thought, I'm writing this, explicitly been in my mind, I'm writing this so that people would live forever. I mean, the things I've written, some of the things I've written, like, yeah, I want people to read this and hear the gospel and live forever, but, but there's a different feel here. God's moving you. I want you to write this down because through your words, people are going to live forever. That's why John writes. So I have this strong desire. I texted a friend this, this week. and said, I just feel strongly this week to speak really clearly right here that there is a heaven and that there is a hell. I want, I want you to hear that as clear as I can make it. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. So there's a reality of everlasting joy and everlasting sorrow. And what is the line between them? Where's the line you spend eternity here or here? Well, it's not good works. The line is not intelligence or money or power or social standing. The line is not how many degrees you have or don't have. The line is not church attendance. Oh, I hope you don't. I hope you don't hope in coming to this building that somehow this makes you right with God. That's not the line. It's not Bible reading. I know a lot of people who can quote a lot of Bible, but I'm not sure they know Jesus. It's not giving of your financial resources. It's not the line. doesn't matter how big the check is. Doesn't reconcile you to the Holy One. I had my first opportunity to help an elderly lady across the street, for real. <laughs> like a couple weeks ago, like what was this thing we do downtown? I can't remember the name of it. Winter walk. And I, I did, and I walked away and thought that that's the first little old lady I've ever helped across the street. <laughs> That's not the line. It's not the line. The difference between everlasting sorrow away from the presence of Jesus and everlasting joy in the presence of Jesus is belief in Jesus. That's the line. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through good works. It, no one comes to the Father unless you go to church enough. No one comes to the Father unless the check's big enough. No one comes to the Father unless you've read the whole Bible. No one comes to the Father unless you can quote a lot of it. No one, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter, 11, or Acts chapter 4, there's no other name given among men by which you must be saved. 1 John 5, 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So the line is believing in Jesus, and that's why John writes 
this book so that you would believe. But when I say that, I want to press in here. When I say belief, I don't merely mean believing that Jesus is a real person. The devil believes that. I don't merely mean believing, yep, I'm a sinner. I agree with that. I don't merely mean agreeing that Jesus is the only way. You could agree with all those things. You could assent to those things intellectually. You could say, yep, I believe that Jesus is the Savior. I believe I am a sinner. I believe I need to come to Him. I believe all that. You can believe all that. Mentally assent to those facts and be lost. The call to believe in Jesus runs deeper. It's a call to receive Christ for all that He is for you. John chapter 1, believing and receiving are used as synonyms. Verses 11 and 12, chapter 1. So to believe in Jesus is to receive Him, to trust in Him, to cling to Him as your only hope. So in short, if you would live forever in the presence of your Creator, you must believe in Jesus. And so the question is, quite possibly, the most important question you could ever ask yourself. Have I believed? It's a short question. And it doesn't require an essay to answer. It's a yes or no. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you turned from sin and trusted in Him? Have you considered His ministry? Have you considered His person? Have you considered these signs? Have you read this book? Have you looked at these things and then walked away? Have you looked at these things and listened to these claims and then rejected, stiff-armed Jesus? Or have you heard and seen and come to Him? So John wrote the Gospel of John so that the latter would be the case. I'm preaching right now. I'm, I, I'm, I'm going through all this and, and I'm praying. I'm hoping. If you've never believed, you would believe. And if you believe, guess what you get? Not just heaven. That's too low. You get God. You get Jesus Himself forever. You get the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. That's why, that's why when, when, I do, when I preach the gospel, when I talk about coming to Jesus, I love those phrases, everlasting sorrow and everlasting joy. We don't want anyone to ever experience everlasting sorrow. Instead, what we have for you is everlasting joy. That's powerful. Why come to Jesus? Why become a Christian? It seems like you guys don't have a lot of fun. We have all kinds of fun. We know the one who satisfies our souls. Come to Him and live. Third, finally, if you have come to Him, keep believing for life. Believing in Jesus isn't something that you do once in your life and don't do again. I think we, we've kind of given that picture, uh, particularly in the, in the South, and maybe I just, my experience has not been in the North, but in the South, you know, the, they're coming down the aisle because there's the altar call, and, and God has used that in amazing ways. So I'm not denigrating it at all, but some people would walk that aisle and they would think, hey, I did that thing that saved me, and I don't ever have to do that again. 
Believing is not something you do once. Believing is something you do every day. You don't just check the box of belief in Jesus. I once, it's not a lie, I once wrestled a crocodile in Malaysia. Two guys jumped on its back. I jumped down there, taped its legs together, and its mouth shut. Um, I can check that box. I don't have to do it again. I've gone to the St. Olaf Christmas concert. It's different than wrestling a crocodile. I was dressed differently for that occasion. I can check that box. I don't have to do those things again. One is more preferable than the other. And I'm not going to tell you which one. (laughs) But belief in Jesus isn't like that. It's not like that. We believe and we keep believing. Listen to Jesus, Matthew 24. The one who endures till the end will be saved. It doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that. But it does mean that those who are truly born again, those who have believed savingly in Jesus, those who have come to Him, will not only believe once, but they will believe in Jesus for life till Christ returns or calls them home. So, this year, don't move on from your belief in Jesus. Don't move. It's not something you move on from. You wake up every morning and you cultivate a heart of faith. You keep running to Jesus. You keep trusting in Jesus. You keep hoping in Him. And in Him, here's what you find. You find forgiveness of sin and you have a lot of sin. We all do. God knows the depth of it more than you know your own. And yet His mercy is more. You find forgiveness. In Him, you find unimaginable acceptance. You may not like yourself, but God loves you. You may worry about what other people think of you. The gospel says, the one who matters loves you. In Him, you have hope. So, if you've never come to Jesus, may today be the day that you'd come to Him and live. The difference between heaven and, the different, and hell is Jesus Christ. And if you have believed, my prayer is you don't stop. Day by day, you trust in Him. And neither one of those things are things you conjure up yourself. Neither one of these things, coming to Jesus for the first time or believing in Jesus tomorrow, are things that you conjure up yourself. These are things that the Spirit of God does in you. Well, if the Spirit does it, what, what do I do? What should I do? Pray. Pray. Ask God. God, bring me to faith. Ask God, God, keep me in the faith. So, 2,000 years ago, a guy named John sits down. He begins writing. He pulls out papyrus. He pulls out an ink and some, I don't know, jar of ink and a quill. And he begins writing. He didn't know you. He probably didn't know how far and wide his work would spread. He did not know that for hundreds of of years people would read his book and find hope in a world of sin and suffering but God moved him to write and so my hope is as we take the next few months and we walk through the rest of this letter God would cause many of us to believe and to keep believing let's pray 
Father, we thank you for this day, for life and breath and every good thing you've given us, including the gospel of John. May we not neglect it. May you use it for our good, for the joy of our neighbors, and the fame of your name.